Every time I bring up my favorite movie or song, y'all call my shit corny. You act like I don't have no taste and no flavor. I'm a Luddite or some bullshit like that. What kind of particular shit is that? It's the shit I like. That's what I like. That's my type of shit. You know? Why don't you know y'all supposed to just say something nice? Showtime. Hi, everybody. This is Brandon. This week's special Aretha Franklin tribute will be split across two episodes. One episode will be on the Say Something Nice podcast feed. The other one will be on the C-Dub show feed. So there'll be a part one and a part two across the shows. If you subscribe to the network feed, you'll get them both in sequence. If you're subscribed to just SSN podcast, you may sh- please make sure you subscribe to the C-Dub show. And then the other part two will be over there. Thanks and please enjoy our tribute to the late, great Aretha Franklin. And welcome to a very special joint episode of the C-Dub Show and the Say Something Nice podcast. Um, I am Brandon, as you guys already probably know by listening to the show, and I am here with Carolyn. Hi, everybody. And we, um, of course, are combining the shows this week. You'll get one half in one feed and one half in the other. So make sure you subscribe to both as or to the joint feed so that you get the whole entire show this week. Um as you guys know, we unfortunately lost the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, this past week. And so we'll be doing a special tribute episode today to honor her uh, memory, her life, her career, and the empty, un, like, the unparalleled. unparalleled impact that she had upon music and upon culture in general. And so we, me and Carolyn today are joined by Ali. Hey. Uh, Latria. Hi. And special guest, Greg. What up? All right. Greg, Greg's so modest. What up? Uh, <laughs> this nigga seen Aretha in person. <laughs> yeah, well, element. Now, now down to your experience in that queendom, um, Greg. I didn't know this about you, but now you will forever be Prince Greg. You didn't know I you didn't know I grew up in New Bethel Baptist Church? I did not know that. Oh, okay. Right. So, so really quickly, um, before we jump into like the, so Greg is from Detroit and for our people who, I think he's told us that on the, our previous episodes before, but like he's from Detroit. He went to New Bethel Baptist Church, which is where Aretha, of course, grew up and where her father, her, her father found a church, um, C.L. Franklin, he found the church or did he just become the most prominent pastor of it? He founded the church. Okay. Yeah. Because it was, 
Aretha's father was, Reverend C.L. Clarence Levon, correctly? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Franklin founded New Bethel Baptist Church where Greg went. Yeah, I went in um, the 80s, like, uh, let's say from about age of seven or eight to about the age of 15. And I kind of just stopped going. But it, it was nothing on the church. I'm not part of the church. <laughs> it was nothing wrong with the church. It was, you know, life was changing for me. And, you know, and we started doing different things. That's all. We actually started going to another church uh, some years later. But um, C.L. Franklin was the original pastor of that particular building where it is now, um, as far as I know, of the church's history. Um, He, you know, was a part of the move to that particular place where it is now and where it has been for the longest time over on 8430 C.L. Franklin Boulevard, a.k.a. Linwood. So. All right. Yeah. All right. right. So um, our episode today will be basically broke up into three parts. Uh, part one will be us just talking about Aretha Franklin, like her, like giving her biography and sort of talking about the impact that she had overall. Part two will be a deeper dive into the uh, music. We have um, some selected selections from her career that we were talking about in detail. And part three would just be us talking about Aretha Franklin's stories, experiences. Because I know we talk, we talk about the whole Pay LaBelle stuff, um, <laughs> her and Sissy Houston on Late Night, um, <laughs> the hats at the, at the Barack Obama's inauguration. <laughs> Mr. Songs, Mr. Songs in the house. All the People great, don't know about the, like, that hat. The great thing, you know. Mr. Yeah. Songs Millinery in Detroit. <laughs> oh, he made that hat? Oh, yep. oh, okay. Mr. Songs Millinery is actually out of business now, but it was a shop on Woodward in the Boulevard. I grew up I grew up seeing that shop. I've been in there a couple of times. I mean, can we say that every church lady has their one like go to? Like, I mean, she was going to the inauguration, but she still went to her like Detroit to church lady hat store <laughs> to get her hat. Listen, and, all, and all the church lady hat stores are going out of business. They are. They, they are. Uh, Mr. Songs went out of business, actually. But all of Detroit used to go to Mr. Songs to get them church hats, girl. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was a big deal. Mr. Songs was the, Mr. Songs millinery because uh, millinery was the trade of actually hat making. Church lady hat stores yeah. are an endangered species. Our local one is a soccer store now. Oh, hmm. that's sad. Yeah, but that's real. That that is a real thing. And uh, I I saw the hat. Everybody been talking about the hat, and I made the comment, "Mr. Songs millinery, Detroit, what in the Boulevard? What up?" <laughs> That was like, man, I remember that. It's a Popeye's across the street from there now. Of course, there's a Popeye's <laughs> across the street. <laughs> oh, it's been God. there for a while, but, you know, it's been there for a while. But Mr. Songs is out of business, unfortunately. Uh, he kind of retired from the business because, you know, just like you said, they are going out of business, but it was a yeah. thing. Right. But anyway, go on. I don't want to disrupt the flow of the show. No, we're all good. We'll get to that. All right. So we'll start, of course, at the beginning. Um, So Aretha was actually, I did not know this. She was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, in, on a May, uh, March the 25th, 1942. Her dad, you know, Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was at the, already a famous um, Baptist preacher. Who, and back in those days, you know, the preachers traveled around in caravans with, with um, gospel performers, you know, and they would come from church to church. 
you know, and you, you know, if you were a famous gospel act and a famous preacher, you know, you got on the same bill and sort of kind of traveled, you know, all across the country performing at black churches all um, wide. The same thing doesn't happen as much nowadays, I guess. I guess, you know, we have TV and stuff. If, you know, you're a famous black preacher, you probably have a reality show or like a show that comes on TBN or, or you know, on like, or like a syndication on Sunday morning. Hmm. Yeah, but well, back I still then, they cut their teeth, though. Like they like, I mean, you know, with so many church people on my feet, I get the flyers and stuff all the time. That's still how they cut their teeth. And they still it's just that once they you, you got to be a big, big superstar to finally get yourself on TBN. Okay. So, yeah, back in his day. Being just on the caravans meant you was famous, but now that's just that's how you get your name known in the community. Now is is traveling, right? And so uh, the family first moved to New- to uh, Buffalo, and then they eventually settled in Detroit while Aretha was still young. Um, and so Reverend Seal Franklin left Aretha's mom Barbara when Aretha was still young, and so she moved back to Buffalo with her kids. Because they had different kids from different marriages, uh, C.L. and Barbara, and left Aretha in Detroit. Mm-hmm. But she, but she would come back and visit. But apparently, it's because uh, Reverend C.L. Franklin was, um, you know, he was apparently unfaithful. Which, according to the research I have done, he had a baby with a twelve-year-old girl. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, that's what they say. Like Greg was like, I don't know if that's what, what actually happened, but. You know, been very yeah, like, Listen, I'm I'm from the old school black church doctrine, which is grown folk business. You don't ask questions about. Okay. You, I so mean, we'll that, probably never know. We'll probably that that probably did happen, but you just didn't discuss it. You did not discuss the church mother's or church father's business. Right. That's just how it was, and so it's kind of a respect that's there. I don't really see where the information would be pertinent here these in this age, which I respect, you know, full disclosure. But well, I guess you could say I, that that lady is Arita's dog, the um that yeah. baby's Arita's sister. So right. Yeah. Right. I mean, we we probably gonna see a whole bunch of relatives come out the woodwork oh, in the yeah. next couple months anyway. Like we so. did with Prince. With this eighty million dollar estate that she Girl, had. He had Prince had a brother show up that was trying to be him. Mm-mm. Yeah. My ability to can is is not, <laughs> <laughs> not my ability to can. I but, just, ugh. but yeah. So as like the daughter of gospel celebrity, you know, Aretha, you know, she at a young age, you know, met and sort of kind of mingled with all like the famous stars of that period, all the famous gospel stars, you know, people like Clara Ward and um, Mahalia Jackson, Sam Cooke, these are people who helped uh, um, Martin Luther King. These people who helped raise her and, you know, like, look after her and everything. People she knew from when she was a child. So, like, whenever they make the Aretha Franklin movie, supposedly starring Jennifer Hudson, they got to buy a whole bunch of life rights. <laughs> yeah, because she did Blue say... Ivy. She's the original Blue Ivy. She, like... <laughs> <laughs> like, we always talk about how, like, we are having our first generation of, like, hip-hop kids who grew up, like, with all these celebrities. But, no, she, you know, she did it back then. That's all. Man, that's that's profound as shit. Yeah. You said she's the original Blue Ivy. Ivy. (laughs) Yeah, but she she did mention that Clara Ward was her mentor. Yeah. Um, Clara Ward was her mentor. Um, so that's that's kind of that's that's highly profound because the Clara Ward singers, you know, Clara Ward is a really big deal in gospel. Yeah. Huge deal. Oh yeah. So yeah. Hmm. 
Now, I heard a story um, that at a young age, um, was it uh, Sarah Vaughn heard Aretha sing in one of the songs that she covered? Skylark. Skylark, yeah. And I just read about that. And Etta James had heard it and said, do you hear this, you hear this young girl? Yeah. I, and Sarah Vaughn said, I did. I've never seen that goddamn song ever again. <laughs> <laughs> she got it. <laughs> well, e- even before that, the comment I heard was Etta James was like, you hear this bitch? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> like, really, Etta? Yeah. Etta is real as hell. Like, I, you hear that bitch? I'm not saying that shit ever again. <laughs> Unnecessary aggression. <laughs> that just cracked me up. I was like, really? Wow. But yeah, Aretha started singing and playing when she was like, um, still a child. Like when mm-hmm. she was twelve, um, her dad started taking her on the road when, it, when she when he was you know going um, from church to church, and she performed with you know the gospel um, as part of the gospel caravan, became a star on the gospel circuit before she was eighteen. Mm-hmm. So, another group, another group of gospel royalty, the gospel caravans: uh, Shirley Caesar, mm-hmm. um, uh, Albertina Walker, the yep. Soulsters um, with Sam Cooke, the Dixie yeah. Hummingbirds. Everybody who was anybody, all the voices of gospel music is was in that one within that one group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so apparently when she was 18, she decided that she wanted to go into secular music. And her dad started sh- um, shopping around for record labels. Sam Cooke tried to get her signed to RCA, which didn't happen. Uh, her dad said no to Motown, well, to Tamla at the time, because even though they're from Detroit, um, they thought Tamla was too small of a label at the time for Aretha to get signed on. So she went and got signed to Columbia, which, you know, had been around for quite some time. Right. And at Columbia, they didn't quite know what to do with Aretha because they didn't understand, like, her gospel background. So they had her singing a whole lot of, like, smooth-ish sort of kind of, like, R&B pop, sort of. Mm-hmm. Like... Stuff like Skylark? Yeah, <laughs> Skylark and um, a whole bunch of other standards. Um, what was the one that was her first single? Um, Good question. Well, no, it's not her first single, but one of them was Rockabye or Baby with a Dixie Melody, which I heard the Supremes version. I'm like, really? Aretha? They had Aretha singing that song of all things? But yeah, they know what to do with her. She was there for five years, and then she eventually just didn't renew her contract when it was over. The most famous recording, of course, from when she was on Columbia is one step ahead, which got, which I feel like got its real revival and notoriety when most Def sampled it for Miss Fat Booty. Mm-hmm. Which is correct. Yeah. I, and then, I was, of course, yeah. now it, it, you know, it plays such a big, big part in uh, Moonlight a couple of years ago. Yeah. That um, was real cool to hear it in the movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, to hear it one step ahead in the movie, because I mean, We've heard the sample, of course, on the yeah. most deaf record, but hearing the song in its own context in Moonlight was was nicer. Right. And that, that was the movie that he kept playing in a jukebox, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Okay. The song mm-hmm. that represents uh Chiron and Kevin. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know that that's what it was when I first saw the movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, because I had only I had only heard the most deaf sample. Yeah. I funny thing is I had a friend of mine, shout out to my friend Jorge. He gave me a mixtape where somebody had put all of, like, these hip-hop records and then the sam- they played the sample, right, and mixed it all together, you know? Like, they, mm. they blend from one to the other. And that was one of those ones that was on there. Was, um, it blended from Miss Fat Booty right to Once a Pay, which was the first time that I ever heard it. And I was like, this song is fucking beautiful. 
It's a great song. It's a beautiful song. We'll, we'll play song. it in the second section. Um, she had she had a lot of good stuff in her Columbia years, but um, there's nothing I, that that jumped out yeah. at you the way her later stuff. Yeah, went. agree. I I like to uh, kind of um, liken it to John Coltrane's career, another big artist for Atlantic. Like um, John Coltrane had stuff in the Bethlehem years that was just as good and just as important or his um, Bethlehem or uh, prestige, but nobody really paid as much attention to it as they did his Atlantic stuff. Right. Cause I mean, also you had to consider thing. Atlantic, how big a record label that was. Speaking yeah. of which they signed her in um, 1966 to, you know, her next contract, Jerry Wexler, the man who quote unquote invented R and B, which means he came up with the name R and B to replace uh, race music. Uh, did he? Yes, he did. Wow, I didn't know that. Rhythm and blues. Um, he came up with that term because, you know, before that, we just called it race music on the charts. It was basically just African-American music. The way we call Latin music, Latin music, R&B is African-American music. You know, wow. R&B yeah. is a euphemism so that white people could buy it. Mm. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that is very interesting. Yes. Right. Because it don't mean shit. Rhythm and blues, nigga, that describes everything. <laughs> Very I was good. wondering when it changed because I remember reading race music. 1948-49-50 in that, in that period is when they changed it. And you say Jerry Wexler came up with the term? Yes, it was Jerry Wexler. Oh. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I did not know he was the one that came up with the term. I would have thought it would have been Alan Freed, but... Nah, Alan Freed came with rock... I don't think he came up with rock and roll, but he, he, he was the one most associated with rock and roll in the early days, Alan Freed. Okay. And with okay. payola. No shade. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'll show y'all the shade because payola. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Jerry Wexler saw, um, signed her. And unlike a lot of the other projects, he took more of a personal hands-on approach with the Aretha project. He produced it himself. Um, for the most part, he he tended to like hire producers and farm out the work. Because, for example, he sent Sam and Dave and also Wilson Pickett down to Memphis to Stax to be recorded. Yeah. And they, you know, Steve Cropper and I didn't produce all this big hits for Sam and Dave. And they produced uh what are the Wilson hit Wilson Pickett hits? Um five, six, seven. What's that? What's the, the, eight, no, uh eight, six, seven, five, whatever. Yeah, that's the, on. The, what is the telephone number? Five three oh nine. Yeah. Um <laughs> and also uh Land of a Thousand. Um is it um or is that one the, wait, let me look it up. Um Mustang Sally was no, no. Okay, yeah. let me look this up. So I don't take these Wilson Pickett hits that were recorded at Stacks to make sure I'm making my point properly. Um, because at some point, Wilson Pickett pissed him off at Stacks and he had to go to um, to Fame Studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, uh, which will come into play in the recent story a little bit later. Uh, the songs they recorded at Stacks were 6345789. It's the number. That's what it is. Shout out to Patty LaBelle and the Bluebells. They sing backup on that record. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And In the Midnight Hour is the other one. Yes. That's what it is. Clearly, I wasn't paying attention because that was the easiest one to pick out. Yeah. Yeah. And so after that, um, they sent him muscle shows where he did Land of a Thousand Dances. And because Wilson Pickett was, after he got um, that Midnight Hour hit, he became incorrigible at Stacks. They hated him. Really? So, yes. he, He was like, you know, became basically a diva in the studio. They threw him out <laughs> and he started trying to pay niggas and white folks because it was stats. So, you know, it was like half black and half white. That was sort of kind of their, like, their jam. They were like the integrated place in Memphis when 
when segregation was at the depths in the South. Um, there are a lot of stories about stats people having to go to like to the black hotel to have meetings because they couldn't meet in like regular white establishment in Memphis to do business at all. Um, but yeah, so he was trying to pay them to, to go back and finish the session. They wouldn't. And so Jim Stewart, the man who, like the president and co-founder of Stacks, called up Jerry Westwood and said, don't you send no more of your uh, Atlantic artists down here to record. We are only recording Stacks artists in Sam and Dave from now on forward. And that put Jerry Wexler in a pickle because he was about to send Aretha down. Hmm. So Jim Stewart, of course, later was like, yeah, I'm the one who said no to Aretha Franklin. Because I was, <laughs> we, were, we just got done Wilson Pickett. We were tired of these Atlantic artists coming down. We wanted to focus on our own stuff. So Aretha was almost a artist at Stacks, but that did not come to pass. Wow. Then that, that, that explains so why. Much about that Northern soul, that would have been interesting to really hear, but we'll never know. Yeah. So they instead took her to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to um, Fame Studios. Uh, where apparently they only worked one day because apparently her and her first husband, um, Tom Tom White, mm-hmm. um, he apparently um, niggas and white folks got into a fight. <laughs> the recording uh, sessions were stopped, and they reconvened in New York City without Tom White, but with everybody else. They flew up from Alabama to New York, so they recorded. Um, all of Aretha's early Atlantic stuff up there in New York. They probably had the muscle shows at some point later, but like the first releases that she did at Atlantic were recorded only one day in Alabama and the rest was done in New York. That included I I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You. Um what else? We, give me a second right quick to get uh situated. <laughs> Cause I'm on the Wilson Pickett page. That's what's wrong with me right now. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like uh, this stuff, these songs don't sound familiar. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I never loved a man the way that I love you. Do right woman, do right man, and a little song called Respect. <laughs> these are all recorded well, January and February of 1967. Now, what do y'all know about respect? The song. I know Otis, um, Otis, um, Otis Redding wrote it. Mm-hmm. Not, only he, he, not only did he write it, he recorded he it first, and it was a minor it. RB oh, hit from I've seen video footage of in that last show, yes. the original Barcase, before they they all perished, that they performed that in that show, too. Yeah. And it's funny because that, they, that show's perform, it had to be December the 9th of 67 because they died on the 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, they were they were their performance after Aretha's version became a hit, and he integrated a little bit of Aretha's version into his. Um, oh, it's his performance. Yeah, it's his performance because Aretha, uh, his version is slow. It's a little bit slower mm-hmm. and more, you know, like old school, like soul. You know, like uh, Aretha took it, her version, and she and they sped it up, you know, with a more driving tempo, and she wrote the bridge. Hmm. Oh. The bridge the is R-A-S-P-E-C-T. Oh. There's no TCB wasn't a thing in 65. <laughs> 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 that part always confused me. Uh, Why did it confuse? Because she says take care of taking care of business. Is that right? right. <laughs> take, take care of TCB. Yeah. So he basically said, take care of, take care of business. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of, I always thought that was confusing. 
I mean, not trying to be a nerd, but <laughs> it sounds good. That's sometimes you just gotta go with. <laughs> yeah, enough yes. words to fit the bars. Right. Yeah. So Aretha Franklin's cover of "Respect," of course, became you know her first big number one pop hit across the board. And as with Michael Jackson and the Jackson Five doing "Who's Loving You," it's her song now. Yes. Always and forever. <laughs> I'm sure Otis was able to buy, you know, like a car or something like that after the royalties from the um, <laughs> publishing rights. <laughs> like, like, like Tina Turner and Proud Mary. I tell people, oh, you know, the person who wrote Proud Mary went to my high school, you know, Elstreet Street. You went to high school with Tina Turner? No. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. That was free clear water. Who? <laughs> Never mind. White folks. Right. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> but yeah, um, and it cannot it cannot be understated how big of an impact respect and the first album, which is also called I Never Loved a Man the Way That I Love You, had on R and B and pop in general. Because people had never to that point really white people. When I say people, let me not just say people, white folks, mainstream artists had never to that point really truly heard gospel shouting like that. They had heard Mahalia Jackson and that's it when she was the imitation of life. That's it. And that wasn't and that wasn't Holy Ghost shout. That was, you know, that was the more mourning yeah. back thing. And that wasn't like like Kojic shouting. Yeah, she got that, she got that morning before Sarah Jane ran up to the cast and thought, Mama, right. Mama, I'm sorry. Oh no. <laughs> I didn't mean it. <laughs> Brandon, at this point, do you like did her dad have any kind of like feelings about her going into the more RB route? When she first did, they had a like, discussion about it, and mm-hmm. he, but he was her manager for the first part of her Columbia career, so oh, okay. he was okay with it, in, more or less, for, um, at after a while. Okay, like he he made sure that she was taken care of. I, I think some of her uh, her was it her brother who was her manager after because like for a while her hus- first husband was, and then after they got divorced, the brother was the manager for like most of the rest of her like like hit period through 1989 when he died. Gotcha. So, like, the family was definitely involved. It became a family affair. I mean, of course, we're going to talk about later about, you know, her sisters writing and singing. and. Oh, we can talk about it now. So, so um, you know, her her sister, Carolyn. <laughs> right. And she Irma, they were singing backup on her records. Come from on, the beginning. Irma? Yeah. Irma. Come on. <laughs> Here, which one was the one that used to play the piano? That was Carolyn, too, wasn't it? I'm not sure. Greg? Carolyn, you say Carolyn? Carolyn yeah. um, Franklin. Uh, Which one Aretha? was the one that used to write music and play the piano all the time? That would be Carolyn, I would say. Yeah. I think I think Irma did some stuff as well. Irma had a few releases of her own, but uh, Carolyn, Carolyn did Angel. Right, because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're asking about that, yeah. Right. She also had a backup group called the Sweet Inspirations, who also did recordings of their own. Um, yeah. They, of course, were founded by... Um, Sissy Houston. Right. Exactly. Who you guys yep. may know as the mother of uh, Whitney Houston and also oh, Whitney. as um, just... Uh, so the, the background singer. Yeah, so I mean, it did 50 years later. She's still singing back up for Aretha. Which still... She wasn't singing though, so that don't count. <laughs> <laughs> but Sissy sang... Sissy has been known for backgrounds uh, singing for everyone, even Luther right. Vandross. Right. So, you know... I mean, she's actually prominently featured on Creepin' when you hear that uh, that remake. Oh, like, creep, creep, creep. Yeah, the the one voice that comes in there goes, "Whoa, oh, time. That's sissy. Oh, okay. That's her jumping right out, like 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they had a big hit of their own called Sweet Inspiration in 1968. I actually bought their album, the reissue of it, the uh, the Atlantic one. It was kind of it was okay. I think I ripped it and sold it because I didn't really care for it, like in vibe and taste, but uh-huh. I respected I respected it. You know, like okay, it's you know, it was good, but but that was also back in that time. Well, not even just then, going all the way to the seventies, where you had whole groups that were background singers. It wasn't about individual background singers. So right. a lot of folks tried to make albums that didn't quite work out. You are meant to be a backup group. Just say your oohs and eyes. <laughs> I don't do oohs and eyes. <laughs> <laughs> But me being a background singer is a respectable position, and they need to respect their position. (laughs) Listen, Dante's lights was always on. Right. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's shady. (laughs) That's mad shady, but okay. But yeah, so... Aretha comes out with this record and, you know, she's gospel shot and the Holy Ghost shot and everything. White folks are like, oh, this is wonderful. This is amazing. This is something brand new. And then my niggas have been singing like that for 100, 200, 300 goddamn years. <laughs> Just, yeah, I pay attention because y'all too busy watching them pick cotton and, and um, shut corn. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah, but it changed the way people saw Black artists in the mainstream circuit after... Respect and after Aretha, they wanted to see how quote unquote black you could actually be. So the biggest, the person who got the biggest hit from this was um, a young lady named Diane Ernestine Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Respect basically killed the Supremes' career. Is that true? It Are is very saying? true. Like they wow. records immediately stopped selling as well. Wow. Because because respect was so much more black, you mean? Yeah, well, than- I mean, I mean, Aretha. It's not just respect. You have to remember that she had hit after hit after hit with you know respect. I never loved a man. Then we started getting to baby, I love you, chain of fools, uh, house that Jack built. Think she? Oh, okay. Wait. So you're saying that respect represents the line where white folks not only wanted. Black people to look and sound like them, they were okay with black people being black. Yes. Now let me okay. ask you this. Now let me ask you this. Putting it, in, putting this with your Motown hat, I want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, there was always a myth that, aside with having um, already having Martha and having uh, Wanda with the Marvelettes, Martha that, Reeves and um, Wanda Young, right from the Marvelettes, that Barry didn't want another shouter. Not saying that Aretha ever, you know, was in line to go to Motown, but that he didn't want that. So that was something that he kind of killed on his own. But also, let me ask you this, because around the 70s, and this is me having only a halfway Motown hit, um, isn't that when you started seeing a little bit more of the Marvelettes than aside from just the, the initial stuff they did, like uh, pl- uh, Please Mr. Postman, when they did the, those last 70s albums? All right, so the first question... Um... You know, Barry wanted to sign Aretha in 1960 when she first mm-hmm. went solo. And started trying to do... Oh, six, 59, 60, when she first started doing gospel. Mm-hmm. And it, they weren't ready to have her at the time. By the time Motown became established, yeah, he didn't want any more showers. He wanted people to sing like Diane Ross. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because Diane Ross sounded like a white woman. And therefore, you know, white people felt comfortable and safe at the time, listening to her. That's why she. That's why they became famous. 
And it was deliberate. Diana Ross could sing better than she did on records. When I by better, I mean blacker. Okay. I'm sorry. I couldn't hear nothing that you said. It just kept saying my my uh my internet was unstable. I missed everything you said. Oh, sorry. Uh, basically, um, the first question, um, they wanted Aretha uh, at Motown in 1960, 1959, early Motown. Uh-huh. By the time Motown became established, they didn't want artists like her anymore. That's okay. Because they, yeah, right, they, they already had Martha. Martha. They were trying to yeah. water Martha down. They already had one. They were trying to water Wanda down. And the second question about the Marvelettes, the Marvelettes made their comeback in 65 with, uh, what's the, um, Don't Mess With Bill. It's when they, they right, revamped right. their sound. And so, like, 65 to about 68 is sort of kind of when the Marvelettes were... Um, had their second um, win, basically. Um, now, was that was that before or after? Since we're talking about uh, Aretha respect. and her sound killing the Supreme, was that after respect? Before and slightly during. Okay. But by the time Aretha really became like the top, like by like '68, the Marvel Labs were big careers, more or less on the wane. Then 1970, they found they found out that Motown was always overdubbing them with the on uh, Andantes, and shit just hit the fan, and they were done. And that was it. That was okay. it. I was um, just wondering because there was a period where they did they didn't get as shouty as Aretha, but that a period where Motown did, you know, let the the Wandas and the Mar- the Marthas of the world a little bit more loose than they did around that, you know, the hot streak of the Supreme. So yeah, like okay. you can hear the Motown artists gradually starting trying to get blacker in '68. You, yeah, when they replaced David, David Dennis um, Edwards, when, who of course Dennis David, Edwards uh, be shouting. When, when Dennis came, that was it. Yeah, um, <laughs> and then even with David his solo albums, there's a lot more shouting on David's solo albums than there was ever was when he was in The Temptations. Does this then mean that Dennis Edwards was always Aretha's soul twin? I'm just being messy. <laughs> <laughs> he might be. We'll discuss Dennis later. <laughs> Oh, uh, he'll come up in the story. Uh, <laughs> and of course, you know, people at Stacks always sort of kind of saying like that, you know, if you were an artist or a Motown and you didn't like the way Motown operated, you tended to go to Stacks. You know, um, Kim Weston went down there. Uh, Mabel John went down. A lot of the, like the black women who sung in a gospel style went down to Stacks instead. Because mm-hmm. they let they basically let you do you down there at Stacks, especially it, in uh, the late 60s when they started doing all the black power stuff. So, Brandon, I have a question about mm-hmm. that. So, so you're saying that um, Barry Gordy, um, he he looked at the numbers and he, you're saying that he's like, okay, fine. So, what's selling more is the, the white white sort of um, voices at right? first, yeah, so, right. Okay, so at first, but you're saying that stacks. No, Aretha, Aretha, not stacks, Aretha. No, but you're saying that there's another there's another recording company. Yeah, stacks in Memphis, like, Tennessee. Right. But they, and they were just like, no, you can be you. Yeah, mm-hmm. but also remember, Stacks didn't sell as well as Motown did. They like did have R&B hits, but outside of Otis Redding and Carla Thomas, they really didn't have national hits like that at that time. At the time we're talking about right now, in the um, mid-60s. Okay, so my question is, um, because clearly what was happening with Barry Gordy, you're saying at the time, was he looked at the numbers. So I'm saying, why didn't Stacks... Why do you think Saks weren't just like, oh, this is obviously selling more, so let's just let's just transform? Because Saks was kind of like, or, I'm trying to find a good thing. Saks was like that restaurant down the street from you in your hometown. It was sort of kind of like more of like a homegrown organization. They they as long as they turned a profit, they were okay. Barry Gordy was had dreams of you know like black upward mobility. 
mm-hmm. and was trying to scale buildings basically to get black people into the Copacabana on like primetime television on sitcoms and stuff. And so he was trying to basically clean, I, well, I use the word clean up like blackness and repackage it and resell it to a white audience. Now, how, whether or not how you feel about that is how you feel about it. That's the truth. Remember, Stax started as a um, record hop. Yeah. So they, that's why the front of Stax was always like, so when you watch Hairspray, you see Motormouth Mabel with that record hop where the people would come in and dance in the record store. Yeah. That's what Stax started as. And they kind of went through their, their recording as a necessity. Well, 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 it didn't start. Well, it started as the, as the, as the recording studio. They, when they moved to College of McLemore and start and came from stat, satellite to stacks, they started the record store because the because because the recording studio was not making enough money, yeah. and so but yeah but that but that was the front face to the neighborhood was the satellite record shop, where they would play records and try to figure out what makes us a hit or what makes us like what we want to do and test their own records. Um, Which but, makes but, it funny as opposed to, to Barry's quality control method of just putting it in. They both had their own quality control. They right. threw it out to the neighborhood. Barry threw his out to polished executives. Right. And Stacks, of course, was started by two white folks, brother and sister, Estelle Axton and uh, Jim Stewart. And it, the white people were, were less. They didn't understand black, black stuff at all. They just, they just, what they found out was that black when they recorded black artists, they sold better. So that's that's what that's what he went towards. Okay, so it's like stacks stacks want to hold true to to um you know that soulful right. kind of stuff. regardless of whether or not it's it makes you an international star or not. They right. were not concerned about that. They were concerned about the tradition. Right. And plus stacks was they didn't have the resources to go international at the time anyway. They Atlantic was distributing their records at the time. Okay. And so, like, they had this very... That's why Jerry Wester would send the artists down from Atlantic to Stacks because they had this homegrown sound that really worked well in the R&B. If it didn't work well on pop charts, it worked well in the R&B charts. And they didn't understand in New York City how to do that. That's why they had to want to send Aretha down in the first place. Okay. But, yeah. yeah so, and you can... T- you Besides, like, the whole David Dennis thing and, like, um, and, like, you know, the... Um, and Martha Reese, stuff like that. You could really hear it when... Um, Barry, you know, Motown went through like 900 different versions of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Mm-hmm. Like every artist recorded it. The one that got out the gate was Glass Night and the Pips because their version emulates respect. Mm-hmm. Yep. And on purpose. <laughs> it's the deliberate copy of respect. Really? Yes. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And, you know, and Glass, of course, you know, always had that shout. Her first Motown recordings, she does not have it at all. She's trying to sing like Diana Ross. These like really glossy, you know, frankly well, wait, boring sounding recordings. Wait, because you know, I'm I'm actually glad you mentioned that because I had <laughs> I've always had this theory about uh Gladys Knight's version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine, which sounded very, very intensely black. Yes. Mm-hmm. What year was that? Was that was a was that a effect of the whole respect? Yes, effect? it was absolutely. Oh, because Marvin Gates was recorded first and released afterwards. Because they canned it, didn't they? They canned it. Barry Gordy did not like the song. He liked the uh, Glass Night version because it sounded like respect. Respect was the big hit on the radio at the time, and so they put uh-huh. that version out. When Marvin put his album out, they put out Marvin's because the DJs would not stop playing it off the album. 
And Gladys says that she was appalled to one day be in like in Las Vegas and hear Marvin Gaye's version on the radio. Because nobody told her. I think her. that Gladys Knight and the Pips pushed a lot of stuff at Motown. I could be wrong. I remember um, either reading or hearing one of the Temptations talked about how the Pips themselves pushed the Temptations dance style. Yeah, they both... Like, so, the Pips, the Temptations, and Aretha Franklin all had the same choreographer and the Supremes, uh, Charlie Atkins. Charlie Atkins, yeah. He came up with the steps for all of those artists. Like and train them all how to dance, and it gave them all individual styles. They don't right. like the Pips do not dance like the Temptations. They don't who they don't dance like the Supremes do dance like Aretha does. Everybody has their own steps, and so and that's why you got the Temptation walk because everybody had one that one signature thing that they did. Right, four tops who refused to go to class, and that's why they got that little the little box. twist at the at the waist yeah. thing they do. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> I be watching the old Fort Tops videos like, did y'all niggas even try? <laughs> but yeah, like, so everybody had their own thing. Um, and what else? Because uh, remember, also, speaking of Diana Ross and the Supremes, the next big hit they had after Aretha broke was Love Child. I, I, do, I was about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's as black as, as you could get with Diana Ross. You put her on, on Ed Sullivan with, with, with an Afro wig and a goddamn sweatshirt that say Love Child on it and some blue jean shorts. <laughs> now, and it's so funny that we would say, we would talk about how they switched after the Aretha Franklin effect. Because when we get to the 70s, we're going to have to talk about how that flip flop. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so Aretha, you know, of course, has all these big hits, you know, aside from the ones I already mentioned. And there's, I say a little prayer for you, um, you know, and a bunch of covers of other people's songs, you know, since Aretha's disrespect work, you know, like her version of Eleanor Rigby um, is very popular. And um, Call Me. Baby, will you call me? Who's that covering? You get that? Well, that I, oh, no, no, that one is hers. That one's her song. But like a lot of other songs she did at the same time were covers. I once one of her favorite one of my favorite covers that she did was a uh, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell's "You're All I Need to Get By." Yeah, I, I that is the her. only other version of that song that I like. Yeah, and who I don't know if that's Valerie playing the piano on her recorded version, but she was plunk plunk plunking. Plink her, plink her, plink It would be. I I I didn't realize. Wait, no, wait, no. Hold on a second. Let me, me check see um if they have the credits. Great. Do you know who produced um? Rita's cover of "You're All I Need to Get By." I don't know who produced it, but um, I know it was on the Greatest Hits album. I just I was just reading that actually yesterday. I was, and I, it's so funny it was, we were talking about Spotify and how many different versions Spotify have. I was looking for it on Spotify, and the only one I could find the other day was one I had never heard. It was the version without the overdubs, which was still amazing. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Well, uh, well, I would say overdub, but you know how so many people back then was um, overdubbing themselves with, you know, different, you know, takes. And so this one just had the one take. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, when you say without the overdubs, I'm I'm interested in hearing that. It's, it's, I mean, it's it's still the... the 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 core of it is still the same, but in that particular um, that particular version, I think that what we're what I would normally hear as the background versions, they're calling it overdubs because it was it was gone. It was just her. Right. Jerry Wexler and Arif Martin. I, I went and found the um the label on oh. <laughs> oh, no, Google Images. <laughs> okay. okay. Interesting. 
Yeah, so Jerry Wexler did it himself. Say without the overdubs. I, I know they did it on, um, she performed it as part of the Live at the Fillmore West. And the greatest hits came out that year prior because by 70, they had already put out a greatest hits. Aretha's Gold was the first one. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah, the and first then, greatest hits. And then when they did Aretha's Greatest Hits, that had three new songs on it at the time Spanish Harlem, You're All I Need to Give By, and one other one. I was reading that earlier. Dr. Feel Good? No, Dr. Feel Good was, wasn't. It was older. Song. Hold on. So I'm trying to look through. Figure yeah. out which one of them it is. Bridge over Trouble Water. That's it. Thank you. It's yeah. on the rare and released album. And it's I'm sorry, it's not without overdub. It's without it's the first tape. We still don't have it, it still didn't have a lot of the the um dubbed in backgrounds and stuff, but they're calling it the first tape. Okay. Then it has the second tape. You talking about the uh where she rushes the vocal? Oh, that's not in there or something. I'd have to listen to it again, but I remember it was it was different than not completely different, but there was parts of it, you know, the 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 release version that w- I recall not being there. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. So now, Greg, you are the expert from early sixties Aretha up, up to nineteen seventy two. Well, now up up to anything before Young Gifted and Black. Uh, which of her early albums is the best one to listen to for, for cover to cover? You said only from sixty to seventy two. Yeah. From 67 to Ooh. 72 of the early Atlantic stuff. What, what the early Atlantic stuff is like, you can listen to from cover to cover, if any. Mm. <laughs> That's a good question. So, like, of early Aretha, I would say um, the Spirit in the Dark album. Okay. Um, from 1970. Yeah, the Spirit in the Dark. I mean, because in her early Atlantic years, she was doing a lot of covers. But she did some original things, you know, like she's got Eleanor Rigby, Let It Be, yeah, you know, Son of a Preacher Man. You know, she was doing a lot of covers, but she dipped her toe into some original. I don't think she found her voice until the 70s. Mm. I mean, as as a composer, I mean, her voice has always been there as a singer because granted, Aretha has had to bridge different um, eras. You know, first the era where women only sang what they were told to sing. Right. And then the era where women did what they wanted to do. And there was a singer-songwriter phase where they let women write their own songs and let women, you know, and, and even as I say that, it sounds shitty. But it's true. It's where like women... when Carole like, King was, like, popular. And yeah, stuff. exactly. I mean, it actually brings to mind part of the Carole King legacy there's a movie called Grace of My Heart. Mm-hmm. I think everybody should see. It's, it's not a great film, but it's a good film. And it's important because it tells a part of that story of women from the 60s and how women had to kind of be the mouthpiece for whatever men said they needed to do. And how women in the 70s took more charge of their careers and were more singer-songwriter types. Mm-hmm. and were doing their own original material or the material they were doing was more closer to their own, you know, life, you know, or they had people write stuff for these women. Right. So <clears throat> I would, I would say I like Aretha's seventies and eighties stuff more. Okay. So spirit uh, in the dark, which 
I just now am reading. That's the sample for uh, School Spirit, Kanye. Correct. In the yeah. spirit. His his chipmunk soul trend, yeah, yeah which Kappa I hate. step. Kappa step. <laughs> which I hate. I mean, there's there's been a wreath of samples where they did not, you know, 45 her voice that are a lot better to me, but... Right. I'm being picky. <laughs> I mean, but you know what? I got to throw this in there. I I mean, I know you said just 70. I can't stop at 70. But I, I, we're we're going to ask. I'm going to ask you that question yeah. later. I wanted to ask you about the early stuff first. The early, I mean, early wise, I mean, I I can, I can, uh, I'm probably going to be funny about saying this, but I would say live at the Fillmore West. Okay. Because her version of Dr. Feel Good on live at Fillmore West, like, I get my entire life over the first 28 seconds. There's an overdub of a woman going, sing it, in the back. <laughs> like, that is always the best on, on like, live stuff. That, like, right that shit is so inherently Black. I love it. That's me on uh, um, Mary Don't You Weep, because there is somewhere in there, one of the women, yeah, I sang, Rita. That's, <laughs> that's when you know you're the shitch. It's probably an overdub. It might be. It's probably an overdub. Oh, no. uh, if they if they had um, the audience might, because listen, I've heard like Temptations Live albums, like the ones they recorded in Detroit, they'd be screaming, say David. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so funny because now when you listen to gospel music, like you can hear them dub out the audience. Yeah. Like listen, yeah. if you like on your headphones, you can you can hear them yelling in the background where they like try to dub them out. I mean, we need the so, audience. I need people in the audience be sitting there and shouting when Tremaine Hawkins be saying going up yonder. I need right. that. So wait, just just to be fair, are we stopping at seventy? Oh no, we're or? we're we're going to a different chapter. Basically, is what I'm saying. But before we go to that chapter, I mean, are you stopping at seventy two for this first part? Well, not not well, not not for the first part of the recording, but like just for no. this, like I want to I wanted to have. I mean, a, I know. Yeah, I know. I'm talking about for this first bridge you're going into because I I wanted to throw in daydreaming. Daydreaming is from the young gifted and black. Album. Yeah, I wanted to do young gifted and black uh, up to 76 my, as it's as its own chapter. Cover to cover before we get to the 80s is actually young gifted and black because that's with daydreaming. Yeah. And that's with Rocksteady. And yeah. I'm sorry. That's why I want to do that one by itself because that that is like um, a like that's probably like everybody that I know's favorite Aretha album. I don't know if it's okay, Greg's, but... Uh, <laughs> well, it's but, yeah. not mine. It's not my favorite, but I like it. Right. So Young Gifts in the Black, um, Aretha released in 72. And, you know, like like Carolyn said, you know, it's got Daydreaming. It's got Rocksteady, Young, Gifted, and Black. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's a very, very popular album among people that, like, I know. And I, I think it's great, too, as well. Um, mm-hmm. So everybody knows Rocksteady. Even if you don't know, if you see it, saw Tyler Perry's I Could Do Bad All By Myself, uh, Taraji P. Henson, or at least the person doing her her double and her vocals. Cheryl, Cheryl Pepsi Riley. <laughs> Is that who it was? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, does a that? version of Rocksteady for the you opening of the motion picture. I did not know that was who dubbed, dubbed Taraji in that movie. But yeah, uh, yeah. Rocksteady, Aretha wrote it herself. It's probably my favorite of her of her compositions, you know. What it is? It's a funky, low down feeling. Give well, me this my my movie experience with that is in uh in Crooklyn because that's what the kids are watching her performing on Soul Train. Right? Yeah, I love that in Crooklyn. That was nice. That was the best part about Crooklyn was how they how they he made the old songs a character in the film. Yeah, I like how, I like how Spike did that. Yeah, 
and seeing the young girl dancing to that, how how them and their kids were dancing to it. It was great. right. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. And so, daydreaming, of course, you know, is a very famous song that everybody's tried to cover, but you know, nobody really can do it like Aretha does. And I think we discussed this on a Dennis Edwards episode. It's about Dennis. Uh, when you told me that on that Dennis Edwards, I've been telling everybody I know <laughs> ever since that that episode because that blew my mind. Yeah, because she had been divorced from her husband by this point. And her husband apparently was abusive, um, Tom White. And so they got divorced. Let me see the year they got divorced, just to make Ted, sure. Ted White, not Ted, Tom. Ted, my bad. Yeah, uh, Ted White was very abusive. Yeah. Let me double check what year it was they got um, divorced. 1969. So she was single at this time. And she was digging on Dennis Edwards. <laughs> and apparently she told Oprah that it was about Dennis. So... <laughs> Oh, she did? Yes. But then she tried to, when when Ed Bradley tried to ask her on the 60 Minutes, she tried to be coy about it. Uh, that was funny. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, she must not have told nobody before because, you know, that was funny to me. Listen, this was pretty. I don't I don't blame but <laughs> That's fair. Dennis, Dennis was a very handsome man. I mean, let's, let's not mince words here. Dennis was I mean, just like my grandfather in the 70s. That's, I think that's why I would be always confused. <laughs> they had the same haircut. They used to wear the same kind of suits, everything. He looked just like my grandfather in the 70s. Any, oh, anytime God. somebody brings up Dennis Edwards, I always think of the video for Don't Look Any Further. We have chewing what? them cashews. We <laughs> chewing them cashews at the beginning. Whoa! Oh. <laughs> well, 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 well. I'm going to send y'all a picture of my grandfather in the 70s. Y'all going to be like, that's, that's Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my glasses. Like, my wow. <laughs> Did he have the Laura Bugattis, though? What's the Bugattis? What's that? The Laura Bugattis, the glasses. Oh, the what? Now, in the 80s, he didn't look like Dennis no more because, you know, by then he had grandchildren. He was respectable. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 70s. Back in the 70s, when he was out catting around, he was looking like, that's how I know. That's how I know Dennis was. He was a, a snack back then. Like, wow. Lord Jesus. Hi, grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so in 73, she released the album Hey Now Hey, which was produced by Quincy Jones. Yes. Well, co-produced. They produced it together. But yes. apparently this album didn't sell well. Unfortunately. But tell us about it, Greg. You have... <laughs> you're yes. I, I fell in love with that record because um, Angel is on that album. Yeah. Um, Mr. Spain is on it. Uh, shout out to Kevin Silky Ford. Um, he actually put me up on this record a little more than I was originally. Um, Mr. Spain is about uh, a guy uh, doing drugs against that. Um, Moody's Mood, her version of Moody's Mood on it is really why I fell in love with it. Um, that particular album, I fell in love with that album off of that song alone because her version of Moody Moody's Mood, which is written by James Moody and performed by him famously, her version of it is just amazing. Like, completely amazing. And um, the B-side of it was uh, Master of Eyes. The Deepness in His Eyes, which was actually charted as a single for a while in the R&B side. Um, hey Now Hey is something I'm still digesting to this day. I mean, as an album as itself, it's, it's amazing in a lot of different ways to me. Um, it also contains her version of That's the Way I Feel About You. Um, the song by Bobby... Womack. Um, 
Bobby Womack, yes. I'm trying to get the man Bobby who stole straight. Sam Cooke's wife clothes and um Well, like. Aretha stole that song from him because now <laughs> I mean people don't people like Bobby Who, like at this point after Aretha covered it. We need a list of of songs that Aretha stole. Cause that's what that's why my favorite is Young Gifted and Black, because she stole I, first of all. I'll be honest, between her and Donny Hathaway, I did not know for years that Nina Simone wrote that song. And I do not like her version. I only like, to me, it's always between Aretha and Donny and Aretha wins. Wow. I mean, Nina Nina did some amazing things, and you got to give respect to her for oh, even yeah. writing it. Yeah, I it's mean, a great song. If anything, song. Yeah, if, <laughs> if anything, Aretha would have never covered Mississippi Goddamn. So. That's true. There is that. I mean, and I love Nina for that alone. You know, the, the that song is just... <laughs> but anyway, I mean, Ariza has covered a lot of different things. And I, to be totally fair, Ariza has not covered songs and totally murked them to where nobody else could ever touch them. She's not, she's not done that. Because I, I just posted on, um, on Facebook... Uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday, her version of "It's Your Thing," the Ozzy Brothers song. It's cool. I didn't to listen to it. It's cool. I mean, it's dope because Luther put the funk on it, but it ain't murking the Isleys. It ain't murking, you know, the original like Isleys joint. You know, it ain't doing that. It's nice though. So Aretha's nice to me. She she's done nice covers, but she's not, you know, she's not murked stuff where nobody else could ever cover it. Well, I, I also I prefer her version of, we talked about this on Facebook too, Greg. I preferred her version of Until You Come Back to Me by Stevie Wonder. Which, I, fair. which comes up and next. Even so. When Mickey Howard did it, she did it great justice. She didn't do it greater than Aretha, but I think that's also because hers was sped up a little bit more and it was more 90s. But it's still, a, hers is a great version too. But hers is just a direct copy of Aretha's though. Yeah, it wasn't sped up. It was just jacked up. It was like yeah. new, it was new, new, jack, new jacked up. Yeah, <laughs> it was new jack swinged up. Definitely yeah. with the drums and everything. Right. So Aretha's next album after this, which is "Let Me in Your Life," and contains her version. Well, well to be wait, honest, wait. hers is the first released version of "Until You Come Back to Me." It was written by Stevie Wonder and um, um, uh, Morris um, and Clarence Paul and them. But Stevie recorded it when he was a teenager, and never it got never got released. And then oh. he gave it to Aretha in in seven in the seventies in seventy three. Well, hold up. In- interestingly enough, when you say never got released, let's delve into that a little bit because technically it wasn't released at but the time. It really, it's been released since, of course. It was on the anthology. Yeah, in seventy seven. Oh, okay, okay. After uh, this version after, became a hit, yeah. he oh, recorded okay. it in sixty seven. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I never knew that. Because I have the anthology. Yeah. And I didn't know what year that came out. I didn't know what year the anthology came out. Yeah, the anthology came out in 77. It's a three-record set, and it has, like, a whole bunch of his old stuff on it? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. So, all right. I mean, but you actually, when you say 73, you glossed over Amazing Grace. Oh, yeah, you did. Oh, my bad. (laughs) That, which I, which is okay. The check is in mourning. Yeah, we had to go back because Amazing right. Grace is so. Like, Greg, tell us about yeah. the Amazing Grace concert and the album and the pending film. Well, there is a film that's um, still in litigation, as it were. Because well, well, first, tell us about the concert itself. So, like the concert itself. Yeah, on two nights in 1972, January 13th and 14th. She recorded um, at 
the uh, what what was the church again? I'm it's in at, L.A. It's a church in L.A. Anyway, I will get into the specifics later. But she recorded um, two nights um, at this particular church uh, with James Cleveland at the helm directing, uh, co you know co directing with her and everything. And um, Joel Dorn was one of the producers. Jerry Wexler and Arif Martin, of course, were in tow. Um, they basically ended up editing those two nights and condensing them into a double vinyl release that came out in 1972 originally. Um, there were some overdubs done on that of those original recordings to really for prepping them for an official release in 1972, uh, switching the order of certain songs around and things like that you know, but still making their own composite live recording that they put out in 72. Since then, in 1999, they reissued, by way of Rhino, the original tapes of the night of the 13th, the night of the 14th of their own, in their own full tapes. And those are available as well. You can find both versions online uh, from different, you know, retailers used and I don't know if the original pressing is still in print, but I know that the Rhino one from 99 is in print now. Um, So as for the film, yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to get to that film part next. The film, as far as I know, is still in litigation and has been blocked by Aretha's people for fair use of her name and voice. I don't know exactly why she's blocking it. Nobody knows the real reason as to those who are close to her may know, but nobody, you know, outside of that really knows why she blocked the film because she told the free press, Detroit free press, that she actually loved the film. So it was actually blocked right before it was supposed to air at the Toronto International Film Festival back in 2015. Yeah. And this side note, I just found an article that just came out actually today where someone close to it says, wait, let me go back to it. A person with knowledge of the saga said the movie will come out. It seems the family is interested in it coming out. And then later on in the film, it, I mean, later on in the article, it says kind of the same thing. He says, no one knows why she doesn't, didn't ever want it released. They think it may be money because she was always afraid of getting ripped off. That's why she always preferred to be paid in cash. And took her purse on um, stage when she performed. Right. We're going to talk about that when we talk about church. Um, And also, they're trying to find out, it's unclear whether she left any instructions about the film in her will. Mm. Mm. I hope hope she don't pull a P.L. Travers on us. I hope not. Uh, (laughs) What's a P.L. Travers? So P.L. Travers is the lady who wrote the Mary Poppins books. Okay. She put in her will that no studio could ever adapt them ever again after her deals with Disney in the 60s. So they have a Mary Poppins movie coming out this Christmas. I don't know how they made this thing. I don't know if they're going to get sued before it come out. I don't know what's going to happen. Right. Because she was very clear in her will. Never again. No American studio. Maybe they produced it in Britain and brought it over. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so Amazing Grace, the movie, was actually directed by Sidney Pollock. Correct. Uh, and... I, I just found out the reason why like it, they never got a release back then because we talked about how he, he couldn't finish it because it wasn't synchronized. He didn't use a copper board when he, when he was making it. So it's just lips flapping out of sync. Just <laughs> well, What's a copper board? Copper um, board. Um, take two. Action. That thing that they put up so that you, that you have that click so you know when you're editing the audio 
that's the point where you put the synchronization. So, because the audio and video are recorded separately in any production. Right. So oh, you have to go back okay. and post and synchronize everything. Nowadays, they tend to have these digital devices that sync the time code. So you can dump it all into the editor and it finds it all, it's all automatically. But if you don't do that, you have to do the old-fashioned way of having the clapperboard and taking detailed notes as to what you're recording. Otherwise, you can get it back into the editing bay. If you're on like an old-fashioned, like big analog, I'm cutting actual film editing bay. Mm. That was probably a nightmare. So they just let it sit for years because they couldn't finish it. It was supposed to apparently been released as a double bill with Superfly, which would have been a very interesting um, double feature at the movie theater. Wow. <laughs> that would have been, yeah. Niggas on it's- drugs. Hallelujah. Praise oh, Jesus. Praise the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> let's get, let's get them saved. What they say, what they say in the, the Carlton Pearson movie, we got to get them saved. <laughs> it's very interesting. Uh, Alan Elliott, who's the producer of it now, since Sidney Pollack passed away in 2008, um, you know, hired a post-production house to uh, synchronize all the 20 hours of film that they couldn't, the 20 hours of footage they had. And he's got it ready for issue, but as of 2011, but he couldn't put it out because, you know, Aretha said no. Lawsuit. Right. She said no. But at this point, I think now that she's passed, it's, it's going to ignite a lot of more, you know, notice and attention in it. For those of you who do care to look into this more, there's a really interesting article on Entertainment Weekly about it, along with the actual trailer. Please look at the trailer. The, the, trailer, the trailer is enough. Well, the not enough. But it's everything. <laughs> Yeah, the trailer is everything. I was like, "Wow," because I mean, I, I I knew I know about this album. I fell in love with it. My grandmother listened to it all the time. I know "Mary Don't You Weep" by hand. I knew it. Yes, I knew it so well that when I heard the original tapes from '99 that they Rhino put out, I noticed that an overdub was missing because I was like, "Hey, that where's that overdub? That's not there." Oh, she did that in the studio. And, and see, like yeah. I can't, I didn't come. I don't think I heard "Amazing Grace." I probably did hear it when I was little, little. The first Aretha album, gospel album, I heard that we'll get to later was "One Lord, One Faded Back Too." That was my grandmother's album. We'll get to that um, one later. It's great. Got a we'll get to that it. one later. I yeah. learned about we. One of our dance teachers in high school did one of her. Um, dances in every year. Like every student who's ever been to her class for thirty years did um, Sunday morning, which was to Mary Don't You Weep. And it was always funny to watch the class learn the dance because you had, you know, the, the black girls and you had the white girl. And they <laughs> learned the dance. And in the middle of Mary Don't You Weep, when she kind of do the ma, 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 they, she put like a shout in that part of the dance. And you could tell the girls who, you know, then grew up around shouting and the ones who was counting because, you know. <laughs> so I, that, that was my introduction to it. And just for me, you know, growing up with James Cleveland, like I said, James Cleveland, that's the voice of God. When James Cleveland talked, that's, that's God talking. So it, just listening back to that album, one thing I always tell people about Aretha when it comes to gospel, there's been a lot of people go back and forth to their gospel roots and back. Little She's Richard. the only person who never necessarily went back and forth. It just was. That's true. She did, it just was. She do a guy. I did a gospel. My release last year was gospel. Okay. But when it was somebody like Al Green, it was like he didn't got saved. He only sing gospel now. Okay, now no, he don't. It was always like the big thing with her. She just she just was all those things. 
and it was always okay on all sides. She could comfort comfortably exist in both worlds. Exactly. Yes, yeah. All the time. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. And apparently, uh, Amazing Grace is her best-selling album. I believe it. I and it's the best-selling gospel album of all time, period. I believe it I'm because, yeah. It was, um, it's, the funny thing to me is I, I'm interested in it because I haven't really fully ingratiated myself in the digital world in terms of buying a lot of digital downloads and things. I do it sporadically. So for the stuff I own, I haven't went back and looked at iTunes for that. I wonder which one iTunes is pushing. I find out for you right now. Yeah, I'm interested in, are they pushing the Hmm. 1999 reissue or are they pushing the original edited tapes? Live. I'm about um, to go look. iTunes, look up. (laughs) Because they're both both on YouTube. Anywhere in any of the history... Oh, Amazing Grace, talk about how it just came to be. Like, just out of the blue, she just did a gospel album. How and why? They have both, Greg. Interesting. Okay. How do they have it labeled? Um, The original LP is labeled as just Amazing Grace with the original artwork. And Mm -hmm. the the reissued version is labeled as Amazing Grace, the complete recordings. Okay, cool. That's interesting. I don't know how, why... You know, she decided to do it. That's it, an interesting turn. I, I'm, you know what? I think that the documentary would tell that story because they had to have filmed some footage about her talking about why she did the album at that time. Yeah. It's not just the concert itself. There's like footage around, hey, what she did around that time, what she was doing around 71, 72 when they recorded it because they would have had to prep it, let's say early 70 or no, end of 71 because the recording actually took place in January, January 13th and 14th of 72. Okay. So they would have, they would have been like producing and prepping and getting stuff scheduled in the end of 71. That's my thought. So, and you know how companies kind of produce and you know, schedule and arrange stuff early, at least six months to seven months early in prep for something like that and in prep for a live recording, it's easy to conceive June of 71, July of 71, they would have been talking about this, getting ready for it, scheduling the church, all of that, you know, and then boom, it happened in January of 72 is my thought. I would be willing to believe if this, if they started planning it in 72, I mean, in 71, that this is just me theorizing that it had to do with where America was and where the civil rights movement was at that time. And somebody felt that it was needed because at that time, you know, she had a sung at Martin Luther King's funeral. You know, you had a lot of funerals going, you had a lot of people, you know, looking for some sort of inspiration who were already using her voice for that inspiration. Anyway, I'm sure it's, I would believe that that's a a time that they just thought that America needed or black America rather needed that album. That's fair. I can see that. That's that I could definitely see that. That's a thought I could see as well. Like, like 1970, like 1971, 72, 73 was like a, a great period for like black culture in general. If y'all if y'all have seen Watt Stacks, right? Yeah. The outfits, I, actually, I actually have not. Dude, you should. Oh really my see god, it. you gotta it's see it. So I don't good. know my favorite music documentaries of all time. Because it's, it's not that I don't want to see it, it's that I just have yeah. not. It, even, even even if you don't are familiar with the music, you should watch it just for the cultural part because they mm-hmm. go out into Watts and they interview actors. Um, 
<laughs> but even though they're actors, they're giving their real thoughts. Like like um like Ted Lange is there and a lot of other like you know because they they was they found they had to have people with sad cards on camera. So they got actors in LA and just asked them random questions about about black life. And you get all these like great raw answers about these things and everything. And like you see people wearing, you know, like those 70s outfits. When they came to the concert, man, some of them outfits were amazing. They were insane. Yeah. It was they, like, they, they were more dressed up than some people who came on the stage. Wow. That's something I definitely want to give more time into checking out and interest. Oh, I see where you see this clapperboard thing about it. Okay. Yeah. Pollock was unable to complete the film because he had not used a clapperboard to synchronize pictures. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah that's a big no, no. Ooh. Okay. So yeah, whoever um, the guy, this producer is the new guy, uh, Elliot, Alan Elliot, he went back and hired a post house to get all that done. And I guess they fixed all the footage. Yeah, that's a lot of that. So they, they, they did it, though. Yeah. They did the work. Let me ask yeah. you this, Brandon, though. If when you are... I can't think of any other film that was filmed live in a... Basically, a gospel concert. Like a film and not just a video of a concert. So I... do you think that he probably didn't use the clapper? Because, I mean, how do you really use one in the middle of a church service? That might have been it, but I don't yeah. know. Like they, they had, they should have had an assistant taking notes, or if they had well, notes. yeah, <laughs> I was, I would say that Clark sisters film, the the gospel one, where Clark sisters oh, and all yeah. them are involved in it. Mm-hmm. That that would be another one where they probably just rolled tape and just recorded it. Yeah, you because know, you can't control the spirit in a black yeah. church, sir. Yeah, you can't, you can't control the black no. Holy Ghost. They be sitting there, Lord no. Jesus, we thank you for action. Women in the church. <laughs> they would not even scream. They just give you that look. Right. <laughs> they reach right. behind the pew and try to find the leg and slap it right quick. Right. <laughs> they reach behind the pew. With her, with her plastic spatula, that's what they gonna do. They gonna hit you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for the lie. That's Ooh, yo, that's that, that pew slap now. <laughs> that's real. Listen, I've been pew slapped before. Yes. That is so real. But now, but going back on track to um Amazing Grace and just what it means as a gospel album, I mean, she she managed to successfully blend, you know, gospel and R and B in that record all at once because she covered Carol King when she did Precious Lord Take My Hand and bonded it with You've Got a Friend. And then also she covered Marvin Gaye's Holy Holy, which was released like the year before. Yeah, on what's, what's going on, on LP. So, I mean, I found out years later that she was able to still be her R&B self within a gospel realm. And she still yeah. took it to, you know, the heights, you know, that she could only do. Right. You know, so the reason why I love that record is more than the historical significance of what it means as a recording itself. It really is one of her best albums. Mm-hmm. It really is. So for right, when people say it's her best selling, it righteously is because it really is her, one of her best records. Right. I mean, in the, in the height of 72, like when she was really almost the end of her hot streak mm-hmm. when she was really hot and, you know, she wasn't trying to reach for hits Mm-hmm. Because I do have we bridged into 73, 74 yet? We're about know. to. Okay. Well, well, we'll go into that more when we bridge into 73, 74. But she was really, you know, kind of desperate for hits later on. Yeah. 
So we talked but, about how yeah. Hey Now Hey didn't sell that well. Let Me In Your Life did. And then she had two more Atlantic albums. Um, Let Me... um. With everything I feel in me and you, with both of those didn't sell well at all. They didn't. But with everything I feel in me is really it has a lot of good stuff on it. She actually has um, a cover of "You'll Never Get to Heaven If You Break My Heart" by the Stylistics. Yeah, she has a cover of that. She shuts it down because she got a part at the end where the music is gone and it's just her singing. And she's doing la la la. She said, Ooh, that's a lot of la la's. <laughs> la 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 la. She's just going. I'm like, Well, damn. She shut it down. She actually does a cover of I Love Every Little Thing About You, Stevie Wonder's song. Too. Uh, she does a cover of that. That was that's nice. That's which album? Uh, With Everything I Feel in Me. Oh, okay. Unfortunately, it's one of the few, one of the, I wanna say five. One of the five Atlantic albums that has yet to been issued on CD. Really? Oh. Yes. I see they issued it on digital at all. Well, uh, I'm looking on Spotify and it's not on here, so. Yeah, it's probably not. Because there's about five of the Atlantic albums that have still not been issued on digital or CD as of yet. I just saw they had a they had a uh, a box set for Atlant- um, Atlantic Aretha albums. I'm going back sucks. to it. Oh, it, it does? I saw it. It's, it, you know what? It's, it's nice. The nicer part of it is it actually has the Oh Me Oh My Live in Philly 72, which was a Rhino Handmade release before. And for those of you not aware, Rhino Handmade was a label Rhino came out with to do smaller reissues. Yeah, Atlantic, I mean, uh, Rhino numbers. is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers Music, like Atlantic Records is. Exactly. And they would do reissues of stuff, like numbered, limited edition reissues for stuff that they thought a few people wanted, and it was initially an issue of 7,500 copies, and after that, it was it. It yeah. was shut out. So the Omi oh My shows up in that box, the Atlantic Albums box, and it's nice, and it has a lot of her 70... Oh, it has Nick, all her... Nigga, you're yeah. right. They skipped straight from... Um, yep. Yep. Uh, from uh, Let Me In Your Life to Sparkle. I listen to my brother Greg when he always talk about, you know, still buy your CD, still buy your album because somebody will rescind some rights mm-hmm. and it's gone. Yep. <laughs> it's gone. Yep. So with everything I feel in me and you and Sweet Passion and Almighty Fire and La Diva are nowhere to be found. Right. The other three that he just mentioned are uh, Aretha's last three albums that were on Atlantic from 77, 78, and 79, the, which didn't sell at all very well. Yes. The one well, bright point of this period was 1976, where she recorded the soundtrack to the movie Sparkle, which was yes. a Warner Brothers movie. So right. here's another anecdote for you. Um, so Sparkle, who here has not seen Sparkle? Me. Latria has not. Okay. I haven't seen Sparkle. All right. So, for those who don't, Sparkle is, is a musical question mark about, <laughs> about a uh, written by Joel Schumacher in his his introduction to Hollywood, his feature film writing debut. You know who Joel Schumacher is, right? 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 Y'all. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This is the first movie he ever wrote. Um, it's about three sisters from Harlem who start a singing group called Sister and the Sisters. It's Sister, um, Dolores, and Sparkle, who's the youngest. Um, sister meets a gangster named Satin Struthers who gets her own drugs and shit. And so she falls out of the act and eventually, I mean, it's a, it's a 40-year-old movie. Spoiler for a 40-year-old movie. She dies. Um, and so Sparkle has to carry on as a solo artist. 
Um, Curtis Mayfield wrote these songs for Sparkle. You may be familiar with the most, the biggest hit from the soundtrack, like the key song in the film, uh, giving him something he can feel. Mm. Uh, the other um, big songs are Hooked on Your Love, Jump, um, Loving You, Baby, and uh, Listen, um, Look Inside Your Heart. Look, look into your heart. Look into your heart. Wait, how does jump, though? I feel like I know jump, it. Jump. Here we go, jump. Not to be confused to we not to be confused to jump to it. Yeah. Right, see, I, that's what I was thinking of jump that's to. Okay. I said you think about jump to it. Now we ain't got to that decade yet. Right. right. Okay. Yeah, right. So <laughs> the movie stars Irene Cara as Sparkle and Lynette McKee as Sister, and they recorded the songs for the film. Um, Curtis Mayfield, of course, he wrote the songs and produced them for the film. And he didn't care for either of these women as singers. And they aren't the best singers, to be honest. He thought they should have cast Diana Ross and Aretha Franklin in these parts. Aretha, both of those would have been too old, however, at the time. Um, So when Atlantic put together the soundtrack album, they wanted to offer Lent McKee and Irene Cara and them like a 1% or less royalty rate for the album. So they said no. So Curtis immediately called up Aretha and was like, so they won't do the album. I got all these blank tracks now. You want to do an album, Aretha? <laughs> and so <laughs> the soundtrack to Sparkle does not feature the songs. It features the songs for the movie, the backing tracks, the instrumentals, but not the lead vocals. They replaced everything with Aretha. Mm. Wow. That's an interesting story. I never knew that. Yeah. yeah. And I never knew they that. They never I, released always, the uh, recordings from the film ever on any format. It's all, always, just the Aretha versions. Now, did she renegotiate that royalty rate? Yeah, she did. She used okay, her, I was about to say. <laughs> she used her contract. She already had existing at Atlantic to get paid properly. Gotcha. Yeah. And actually, it worked out in Aretha's favor because, um, as you mentioned, she was kind of going through a bit of a slump at that time. Right. And so them putting out Sparkle kind of was a resurgence in her career. Uh, with everything I feel in me and you were really not well selling albums at all. They didn't, they were very poor sellers, even though she tried what she to do what she could, they just weren't hitting. Right. And then when Sparkle came out, it was a really nice little jump into her career. No pun intended. No pun intended. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it really was, no pun intended. But it was it was a serious jump for her, and it, it was like a really nice little boost to her career at the time. Yeah. Sparkle to for me, Sparkle is a is a, a tie with Amazing Grace as her best album ever. Oh, really? Sparkle, oh yeah. Albums. Yeah. yeah, Sparkle is is a tie. If we talk about of the 70s, right. Sparkle is tied with Amazing Grace as her best ever. Yeah, like her Kirby, version of um Giving us something he can feel became a number one R&B hit in 76. Uh, so we've had this discussion on the show already. And I had a discussion with Greg privately. He's cussed me out privately. <laughs> About what? About my preference for which versions of these songs that I like. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because Aretha's Dude. version of something he can feel, Hooked on Your Love, and, well, those two in particular— she, yeah. you know, she sings around, over, above, and in between the melody lines. Listen, Aretha went in there with no shoes on. Fuck <laughs> yeah. that. She went in that booth with no shoes on and a hot cup of tea. Like, nigga, you gonna get these takes. Yeah, right. you gonna and get so, these... Uh, go ahead, Carolyn. Oh my God. No, I wasn't gonna say nothing, nothing else, actually. Okay. I was gonna say 
that uh, she probably did just just sang it in one take, just sang it and left. Yeah, so I, I mean, was gonna say, yes. I, I had to yeah. learn to listen to that to the album differently because I was so used to because. Even though Lynette McKee and them can't sing that well, Curtis wrote such pretty melody lines for those songs in like mm-hmm. old-fashioned three-part girl group harmony. And that, and of course, I, by the time I heard Aretha's verses, I am so over-familiar with the In Vogue cover from 92, you know? Yeah, me too. Right. Me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Where you they know what, sing the version from the film. That That's actually a good point you mentioned because I heard In Vogue's first. Yeah. Me yeah. too. So we read the same age It was a, a cover. Yeah. Exactly. And then when I heard Aretha's, I was like, what the f? She, yo, she just snatched her wig off when mm-hmm. she recording this stuff. And I mean, you have to be used to Curtis Mayfield's style yeah. and how he records to understand why he did what she did or why he did what he did with Aretha's. Right. Because he actually directed her to sing in her higher range. Yeah. It's she not, it's not like sing. somebody took it and did it different. It's Curtis doing the version that he wanted to do with her. Exactly. Exactly. He wanted her to sing in her higher range. Right. And, um, you know, Aretha did a lot of those takes. It's interesting you say one take, Carolyn, because it actually were multiple takes um, from what I read in the notes. Well, I think, the, the, to me, the interesting thing about both Sparkle, the movie, and Sparkle, the album, is that Sparkle is so much... It was in that that Chitlin's Grits in the Ghetto time. Like, Blaxploitation. Yeah, well, not even... It, it is more, very much a Blaxploitation movie. It's too, it's too much gangsters and drugs for it not to be. Right. <laughs> it is. It's a period picture, but yeah. Even more than it being just Blaxploitation, it's like, I think because you can tell... I don't know how to explain it. That movie... I don't know. It just seemed felt like the mama was cooking Chitlin's all the time. It had that much stank and funk on them, actually. And I don't, I'm not talking about necessarily how good the movie is. But I think that goes back to the type of um, atmosphere that they were growing up in and like coming around in musically. If you ever see, yeah, if y'all ever seen, it's a very dark movie. Literally, like, like there's a lot of it's very shadowy cinematography. Yeah, that that that, thank you for giving me those uh those technical terms because I couldn't really explain it. And then with the way that she sings the songs, it's very smoky blues clubby. Like the whole thing about it has a very very dark tone to it. Yeah. which was a little bit different than where she was coming from at the time. Yeah. I, so. My favorite songs in the album are the ones that are not necessarily in the movie. Like her version, her, like I Get High was a song about sister getting high, which they didn't, they only include the instrumental in the movie, not the um, vocal version. Um, the Sparkle title song. And I like her version of Jump because Jump in the movie makes no goddamn sense. It's a very much no. a 70s funk record. <laughs> the movie is set in 1958. And these children come up onto the stage in poodle skirts and high water pants and they, they they cue their music and this goddamn clearly seventies funk. Dun, dun, jump, dun, dun. I'm like, what yeah. the fuck, Curtis? I didn't think about that. That doesn't make sense. That bothered me the first time I saw the movie. Let's just let's just also because there's no other place to put this in this show. Let's also say that it didn't make sense when they did it again in 2009, and didn't make sense when they did it the first time. Oh, right, so uh, um, twelve, 2012. With um, because whatever, uh, whatever. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. It was right after uh, Whitney died. I was look. I was confusing the year that Michael died with the year that Whitney died. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I mean, but all that aside, Sparkle was uh, her one of her best recordings of the 70s and she never had another hit at um, Atlantic at, at Atlantic actually um two albums later she teamed with Curtis again to do Almighty Fire Woman of the Future 
mm-hmm. in 78 and it bombed horribly. And that's what we were talking about. Um, we were talking about the Aretha Franklin effect killing the Supremes. And are we getting ready to go into the next decade? Are we ready, Brandon? Just about. Would you want to see something about the 70s? You asked well, me to I prompt was... you about something about the set about 1970s music. Well, yeah, because we were we were having a conversation. I was telling somebody about my my love for her, you know, role in the Blues Brothers, which I'm sure we're going to get to. Yeah. And we talked. They talked about how that was her Renaissance period because of those last albums that kind of bombed out because she didn't really fit as neatly into disco. Yeah. But the person who did fit neatly into disco turned out to be Diana Ross. Uh-huh. So that uh-huh. was like, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Donna so Summer fit better than Diana. Because the thing with Diana Ross, and maybe one day we'll do a Diana Ross episode, her recording career as a solo artist was sporadic. Like, she yes. had hit, flop, hit, flop, long stretch period, hit, flop, hit, flop. She never had a what consistent... What made me think about that was when we were talking about Pose, because in Pose, I mean, you know, in the ballroom, Diana Ross is everything. Yeah. Like, so during that period between the end of the 70s, early 80s, yeah, all of her shit was popping. All that well, not, not all of it, but she had them big, gigantic hits like Love Hangover yeah. and The Boss and uh, what's the um one um, about the fight? Uh, no One Gets the Prize and Upside yeah. Down. But mm-hmm. in between them albums and them singles, she had, you know, some duds in there. Yeah. Like Barry, like they never knew what to do with her as a solo artist at Motown. So she would have, she her career was very up and down. And that's what they were. We were talking about how really that when they brought her back in '80 and the Blues Brothers, that was really restarted her career because the 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 um the disco kind of had her sitting the bench a little bit. Right after the sparkle. Yeah. So right before we get to the Blues Brothers, so now Gray, you had to help me with this story. So in 1979, um, Reverend C. L. Franklin was shot and went to a coma. Mm-hmm. So, like, what are the details of that story? Well, I know it, it was a robbery. It was, um, it was uh, a home invasion. A home invasion. At the time, if I'm, I'm, I'm about 90 percent accurate on this. I believe at the time he lived in the Boston Edison district. Um, that's where, cause that was like the prominent area where a lot of black people in Detroit would live. Okay. Mary Gordy had a home in Boston Edison district and, uh, he was shot in an apparent robbery attempt. Um, CL was in a coma for a long time. I want to say somewhere between seven and nine years. If I'm, you know, it, I, stayed, I think it was five years cause he dies in 84. Okay. So it might've been just that five. So he years. never recovered. He never recovered from the shooting. No, oh my goodness. He was he 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 was in the coma for quite a while, and uh, then eventually passed away. Um, now, when CL was um, was shot, um, New Bethel uh, was looking for new leadership. Of course, at that time, which most churches do when their you know main pastor is no no more or cannot perform the duties, they find someone else. They found a young guy at the time, Reverend Robert Smith Jr., who is the pastor I grew up under. And he's still the pastor to this very day of that of the church. Um, that's the one I grew up under, like when I went in the years of, you know, like uh, I would say 82 and on up. Like I was about seven or eight, 82, 83. Right. Um, he took over somewhere around 80, if I'm not mistaken. That's when he was installed as pastor. Right. And um, so Aretha basically put her career on hold for a while to take care of mm-hmm. her dad. She did. And um, 
what, what, when was he shot? He was shot in... Uh... He was shot June 10th, 1979, Lord Jesus. And point well, point she, didn't, she, mm. she might have put her career on hold maybe for about two years, but she was still recording because the two Luther albums came out, 82 and 83. Right. So uh, yeah, for a while, not not for but for a little bit, because like Blues Brothers sort of kind of is in this period as well. Yeah, so yeah, she made to put things on a small hold, but she was still, you know, busy recording and doing her thing. Well, know, I think most same. important that she moved from uh, Atlanta to Arista at the time. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's a fun fact: if you if you plug in CL Franklin shot into Google to try and get some information. Instead, you just get an article about them two fools that had that barbershop shootout the other day about the... the Oh, Lord. Uh, So we can tell (laughs) that It's it's related. So, um, two niggas (laughs) were in the barbershop arguing because, I don't know if y'all remember, a long time ago, Aretha, she might have been trolling, put out a press release talking about her um, uh, biography, (laughs) um, movie about her, where she said she wanted Halle Berry to play her. Right, right. And, and they so, arguing like the movie is really happening yeah. and arguing who's going to play. And, and, then, play. and then guns were drawn in the barbershop. Jesus. And somebody got shot. Somebody got shot. Wow. Oh. So, yeah. I just thought that was a fun place to throw that in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were doing, they're doing a lot. Doing, doing the most. Now, wait, um, Brandon, I know we are still sticking to recordings and if we can, if you want to, we can talk about this another point. But didn't she... If CL was married in 79, she married Glenn Turman in 78 and divorced him in 84, right? Yeah. So she was married to Glenn Turman um, during the period when her dad was sick. Yeah. Okay. Glenn Turman, for those who don't know, uh, was an a- actor who, of course, played Colonel Taylor, Taylor in A Different World. He also played the Forget lead Colonel in... Taylor. Um, he was JD in JD's Revenge. Yeah. <laughs> he was also the lead um, in um, Cooley High. Cooley High. Yeah, Cooley High. And Five on the Black Hand Side. That's my shit, too. <laughs> And uh, Colonel Taylor on a different world. Yeah, yeah, we said that one of first. Course. Oh, you did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I mean, you know, but that that whole time period for her, I know, I I'd never heard a whole lot about what was going on with Aretha during that time because I was, of course, you know, seven, eight, nine. I really wasn't paying attention to all of that. But um, the church moved on as best they could. It was it was kind of funny. And I, this is not shade to any of my fellow um, uh, heavenly That's voices right. out there who listen to this, but it's just the truth. The membership uh, fell very sharply once C.L. Franklin was no longer the pastor of the church. It became a running joke that when the church was full, we was like, oh, is Aretha here? <laughs> <laughs> like, is Aretha here this week? Like, because sometimes she would just come, you know, to the service just to show up as a regular church member and do her thing, you mm-hmm. know. And pay her tithes and, and offerings. Yeah. Just to, if you, you know. want to be blessed, you got to pay your tithes and your she offerings. Was, she was very regular like that. She would just come to church and, and worship like anybody else. But when she came, of course, everybody was all starstruck and everybody was, you know, all gaga that she was there. But mm-hmm. we knew when 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 the church was packed, he's like, it was a running joke. Oh, is Aretha here today? Oh, look, Aretha opening her hymnal. What page you on? Of course. Uh, you know, that's how a lot of people act because they don't know how to act around, you know, stars or right. people. But Aretha right. was very human, very down to earth, very real. She just did what she did, you know? Mm-hmm. She was not She was not one of those... She was a star, but she didn't act like a star. She wasn't, you know, 
That's not who she was. She brought mm-hmm. her purse on stage and put it on top of the piano when she played that's, the piano. Listen, but, but that's not listen, smart. That's, 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 that is a, that's somebody who grew up with them putting her on the piano. Because my Aunt Teeny was like that. She'd get up there and throw <laughs> exactly. that on there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, though, Greg. That's, that, that, that's, that's not, that's not much... star. That's, she's real. Yeah, exactly. That's not star. That's old school ch- black church woman, for yeah. real. Like, so I was like, okay. I mean, when she when she did the uh, Carol King tribute yeah, and brought her personal stage, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's the first that time so She threw off that. She put, took off that fur, put that that gold purse on top of the piano, right? You know, piano. Why? Niggas at church steal. Niggas at church steal. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. Carolyn. <laughs> you are speaking the truth, Carolyn. You are speaking the truth. <laughs> some, of the, some of the folks used to catch the Holy Ghost and have one eye open on their on pew. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, you yeah. think I'm lying? Like, and it's only the Kojic folks that would get up and run from their spot. <laughs> that just search didn't do that. And when, when, when you run from your church, watch my purse. Every time. Watch my purse. Okay. Every time. Oh, my God. Why? <laughs> But so when they would like leave no. it on the pew to go to the choir stand, nah, I'll take it with me. Some of these people did not give a damn by stealing your stuff from church. They didn't I don't want to believe it. No. Okay, fine. I'll leave. Right. I'm just telling you. Some people did not care that they were in church. And oh my God. People stole from you while you was in church. Under the eyes, Jesus. Listen, go on the house call and get her switch. Church. Church is just another scene of the crime. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. It's real. Well, I mean, we, we found that out this week with the Vatican, right? No. Okay. Oh. Okay, okay, but, but, but we're not doing that subject today. Oh, no. Nope. <laughs> anyway. So, so uh, <laughs> Aristotle. <laughs> Why are you like this? Uh, <laughs> Arista, Aretha started out with um, a self-titled album. Mm-hmm. Again. Ooh, Lord, that ooh, ooh, she she got the um she got that Diana Ross press. Right. <laughs> Wait, but why in the album man. cover she looked like what we just talked about? She looked like she got her purse in her lap. Why she take that? <laughs> what she look like? It's not a lie. <laughs> it's not a lie. She looked just like that. True, she does. It's crazy, right? See, that's a compilation. Uh, uh, but, you, but of course, uh, Jump To It, which was produced by Luther Vandross, was like her, really her comeback, the album and the single. Jump, jump, jump to it. You no, know, I didn't know until literally at this moment that Luther produced that. But now that you say it, I, I, it makes sense. You yeah, you can hear it in the song. It's, it's definitely Luther, like it sounds like. Yeah. Now, that's a lot of songs in the 80s, because I remember... Um, listening to Stevie Wonder's Part-Time Lover, and I had never noticed so somebody said that that was him singing background. I said, wait a minute. That's who's singing background? background. Was it Luther who's singing background or James Ingram? Yeah. Okay. L- Luther singing background. Yeah. That's him singing That makes so much sense. That's Luther. Wait, are you talking about a Part-Time Lover by Stevie? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's Luther. That's Luther. Greg, was you the one told me that? I can't remember who told I me that. I think I told you that. Yeah, yeah, because if you hear the extended version, they got him on the beginning vocals. Yeah. And, and he even does, well, a, he now, does a... Now, think about it, it yeah. makes sense, don't it? It makes it totally yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's Luther. Yeah, I miss him even more than that. Uh-huh. Dang it. Luther's like yeah. the comic book fanboy who got to actually draw comics. Because right. it's like, 
you know, Luther was like the president of the Supremes fan club in the 60s when he was young. Yeah. And then he went into like... Wait, are you serious or are you making jokes? I am dead serious. Oh, okay. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he so did. I mean, anything yeah. that... Anything, any, so I don't know how people didn't know Luther was gay. I mean, come on. <laughs> but uh, and then, of course, you know, he went to writing songs, you know, and like singing backup and everything, you know, wrote for The Wiz and all that kind of stuff. And then in the 80s, when he's, you know, becomes a star, he's producing for everybody else as well. See, I never even knew he produced for other people. Yeah, he did. He, oh, okay. Actually, he produced uh, Cheryl Lynn. He produced yeah. Cheryl Lynn, yeah. And the then some oh. duets with her, just World With Mine. Yeah. Um, he produced for The Temptations. Yep. Mm. He produced for a lot of people. His productions in the early 80s were more successful than the later ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because his stuff later, like Luther kind of lost his way in terms of sound, in terms of sounding current. But in the 80s, like he had what I like to jokingly and Carolyn understand when I say the Holy Trinity with him and Nat Adderley Jr. and Marcus Miller, the three yeah. of them together. Mm-hmm. They were they were instrumental on Luther's like, let's say his first six albums for Epic Records and all the productions he did for other people made some of the most funkiest shit you've ever heard in your life. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, the two Aretha albums he had a hand in sound like Luther records, to be yeah. honest. Uh, jump to it and get it right. With his album, and when did that, when did uh, that, for whenever, by the time he came out with his album, you were familiar with the sound by then. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. so he, man, oh, goodness, like, he, he had this sound, but between the three of them that they just made, like, people know, people who know, jump to it the album, they know the lead single, but people who know the album for real know Love Me Right, which is the second song mm-hmm. on there. Love Me Right? Listen, if it's possible to get all your life in four minutes, <laughs> you you will get it off Love Me Right. Because Aretha was on point on there, Luther was in the background, Love Me Right. That shit is banging. I, I, I love that song. I love it. Um, they actually did a, a feature on her on the Today Show back then, um, where they kind of did an interview and showed her in the studio recording This Is For Real, which was one of the tracks that Luther had on his original Cotillion albums that they decided to remake for this album. Yeah. For Aretha. Um, and uh, Luther's original is still, is, is dope. It's originally great. But, you know, is uh, to hear Aretha do it, of course, is nice. Right. And there's a lot of all-stars on this record, on the Jump To It album. Like, you know, Lewis Johnson is on here. Um, George Duke is playing on a couple cuts, you know. You already mentioned Marcus Miller. Marcus Miller. Well, Marcus Miller was part of the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah. That Trinity. Marcus Miller, Nat Adderley Jr., son of uh, Nat Adderley, who was famous for the work song, the jazz song from the 60s. Yeah. Um, Levi Stubbs the, is on this record too? I believe so. I want to make it up to you. Yeah. They do it. Well, yeah, they do a re, I think it's a duet. Okay. Yeah, between the two of them. Between the two of Levi them. Levi Stubbs yeah. is leasing or the four tops, y'all. Exactly. Yeah, Darlene did backup on it. Um, I think Sissy is doing backup on the yeah, record she is. as well. So it's it was really her a really good album for her. And it's kind of a sort of a slightly messy story but and i can't confirm exactly what what the deal is with it but um 
it was so good, they tried to do it again with Get It Right. right. The second album, uh, the next album that next year. And I heard that halfway through the recording process, uh, Luther stopped, like stopped working with her because they couldn't get along. Oh, like, they were, oh. they were They were kind of, you know, battling back and forth, you know, battling wits and, and, and it kind of, you know, made a little bit of a mess between the two of them. So that second album was not as well received as the first one because Luther kind of abandoned it halfway through is right. the story I was told. Um, but the second out al- that album does have some good jams on it too. Like when you love me like that and pretender, the title cut was okay. Luther ended up remaking the title cut years later with the female rapper on his lone Virgin album, uh, Virgin records album. Mm. So, I mean, Is that the one with uh, "Take Me Out Tonight" on it because I ain't listened to that shit. That was after that one. That, oh. that was after that one. The one I'm talking about is from '98. "Take You Out" is when he went to J Records in 2000, yeah. 2001, 2002, 2001. Um, yeah, 2001. But uh, prior to that, he after he left Epic. When he did, oh, and, and I hate to say this, but it's the truth. When he left Epic in '98, he had did. Uh, he worked with R. Kelly at that time. Um, he had sp- the original Spinderella, which is a whole nother set of shit. <laughs> the original Spinderella rapping on a song on the uh, the Your Secret Love album. Uh, oh, okay. No, not the original Spinderella, but Dee Dee Roper, the one who the, the second Spinderella. Mm. Um, had her rapping on a song of his. And, you know, then, again, Luther in the 90s kind of lost his way as... Yeah, he did. Because he was trying to, you know, remain pop. He was trying to go pop and still remain R&B, and it became a bit of a mess with him. Can I make an inappropriate joke at this moment? Feel free. Would this be the difference between Big Luther and Little Luther? I was just about to say but this is the second time he lost all that weight. Yes. Remember, the first time he lost all the weight was when he had that big head. Yeah. <laughs> the second time was when he was out dancing with Gabrielle Bouvet or whatever. Garcelle, Garcelle Bouvet. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I've been was, wanting to say, I was like, I don't want to say it, but I kind of feel like that's. Oh. But it was, it was all still curl ain't quite right, Luther. <laughs> He just I mean, never really, he never oh, really curled all the way Because to be no, honest, the, I always like Big Luther better. Like, yeah, you know, well, Big Big Luther. Most singers, and I don't. This is another extension to your your inappropriate joke. Usually, like like with uh, Jennifer Holiday from Dreamgirls, you can yell as much as you want. You ain't the same as your your big self in the original Dreamgirls. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and did did uh, Vesta lost a lot of weight too? Didn't she? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was right after congratulations. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> congratulations on your weight loss. Uh- right. <laughs> yeah, but Luther, like I said, Luther kind of lost his way in trying to, you know, give people the popular sound because yeah. he was, you know, the funk, when when the funk kind of faded in the 80s and, you know, and kind of people wanted to kill it and they wanted to move over to Boogie, you know, Luther kind of lost his way with that. And so mm-hmm. he produced actually a song for Whitney in the 90s on her third album, I'm Your Baby Tonight, called Who Do You Love? And it's actually very horrible. Shut your mouth. He produced that. <laughs> he produced that. And it's that's yeah. like the, I think that's 
the that was the first Whitney album I actually I actually had the tape. Yeah, <laughs> my mama had that tape. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. Whatever you want not, from me. That but that's that. he produced that one song called "Who Do You Love" on there. That was. Yeah. Yeah, it was not really good. Yeah. But at the same time, Luther was still trying to find his way in the production thing. And I think Marcus Miller was no longer with him at that time. Mm. So, you know, he was trying to find his way. I have to take that one step back. 